Well, that was good singing, that hymn, Surely Goodness and Mercy Shall Follow Me. Now, I wonder if anyone's actually ever named their kids Goodness and Mercy. Hmm? And then they go for a walk, and surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. Hmm? Well, that's a silly thought. Open your Bible, please, to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Ah, yes, we are finishing off chapter 2 tonight. And uh, we will have dealt with four of the uh, seven churches. I've shown you this picture here before. And um, here's a, an artist's conceptional drawing here of the Lord Jesus standing in the midst of these golden candlesticks and then these stars, see? These stars, the angels, the angel of the church of Ephesus, the angel of the church of Smyrna. And we understand that uh, these are the pastors and these are the churches. And so there's the Lord walking in around uh, amongst his churches. And we, we've looked at Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamos. Here's John over here, by the way. That's an interesting way to pray, if you ask me. There he is down there in the lower right, on his face, you know, before the Lord, the angel pulling the, the curtain back, so to speak. Anyhow, that's an interesting way to, to pray. I, I would recommend that. Now, we're only making comment, but it seems, if you were to look at the last 2,000 years of church history, that the first hundred years or so seems pictured by the church of Ephesus. Now, I believe there was a, a real church. I believe all these seven churches were real, actual churches in real cities with real pastors and people in them, just like we're a real church here. But it's quite possible that those churches may also have um, stood to represent sort of um, what the church was going to go through over the next 2,000 years. And so the church at Ephesus seems like it fits the, uh, the, 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 the pattern of the first century church. By the time you get to the end, they were very doctrinally correct. They're very good. And there's just one thing the Lord had to say about them is that you've left your first love. You've left me behind. Then you get to the, the church of Smyrna. It seems to picture what happened over the next 200 years from about 100 to 312 AD. And it's the persecuted church. And there was lots of persecution going on there. And nothing, nothing, um, nothing negative. The Lord had no negative comment there about that church. And then you got to Pergamos. And Pergamos um, is the beginning of the mixture where the world begins to mix with the church. Again, from about 312. Why 312? Because that's the time when Constantine legalized Christianity in the, uh, the Western um, a civilization there with the western part of the Roman Empire till about 606, they figure. Tonight, um, we're going to look at Thyatira. And it seems to cover the next period of about 606 to about five, uh, fifth, sorry, 1517. Um, we'll call it the Dark Ages in which the uh, Church of Rome 
started to hoodwink the people with a terrible mix of truth and error. Uh, incredibly so. And so uh, with that in mind, let's pray once more and then we'll get into our Bible study tonight. Our Father God, we thank you so much for the whole Bible. Now this book of Revelation. And the parts of it are scary. Knowing that there's some dark days going to come on this world in this earth. Lord, help us to get the blessing from the book. I think the blessing is walking close with Jesus. Holding his hand. And he's going to keep us from the uh, hour that is going to come upon the earth to try it. Lord, I pray that you would please open the eyes of our understanding that each of us would be ready to see what it is you have for us. Speak to our hearts tonight, Lord, and please increase our faith, our love for you, our patience, our godliness. Help us to be pure and gentle and hold the truth in love and to live our lives for Jesus in the light of his coming. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, the letter to Thyatira in chapter 2 here is the longest of all of the seven letters. And so uh, that's significant. Um, but what's also significant is the city. Because Thyatira is pretty much a religiously insignificant city um, in uh, that area of Turkey. Uh, the city of Thyatira had nothing really special about it except it had a church in it. Now, on that point, let me say that any city that has a Bible-believing church in it makes that a significant city. Just like in any home, if there's a Christian living in that home, that makes that home significant. And we've got biblical proof on that from 1 Corinthians. I think any... Um, any town, any little settlement community that has a Christian home in it would make that little settlement, that little town very significant. So that's how I see it. The presence of uh, Christ in the Christian and in the church makes any place special. Thyatira was a city of craftsmen and merchantmen and uh, the home of numerous trade guilds including a large clothing industry. Now, guild membership was not mandatory, but Christians would have trouble obtaining work without it. So it was very advantageous to be part of, a, of one of these large guilds. However, the serious problem that came with it was that um, um, the guilds were often heavily involved with pagan idols and their feasts. And so most Christians didn't want to join those guilds. They didn't want to have anything to do with that. Well, we come to verse 18, chapter 2, under the angel of the church in Thyatira. Thyatira, there's some discussion as to what that name means. And the best I've been able to find is it means the odor of affliction. The odor of affliction. Anyhow, there's 12 verses here. And this church seems to picture not just uh, a mixture with the world, but a full-scale entrenchment with the world. Um, what once started as, I think, uh, a, a good, pure church has now mixed itself very thoroughly with the world. So I have a few pictures here to show you. 
you can see where the city of Thyatira is located in uh, the area of Turkey. And of course, here's Patmos off here. And we have Ephesus, and we have Smyrna, and Pergamos, and now down here. You see, we're going in this kind of a circle, or a semicircle. You see what we're doing there. So we're at number four, Thyatira. Um, Thyatira actually still exists today, only it's not called Thyatira, it's called Akisar. It has a population of 150 to 200,000. And um, the ancient city of Thyatira did have the shrine of a satanic priestess. And her name was Sambathe or Sambath. And apparently she would tell fortunes for payment. Uh, we got some of those around here, don't we? You see their little signs outside their home, palm reading and things like that. Now, we don't know who started this church at Thyatira, but there's a possibility that a godly woman named Lydia started this church at Thyatira because that was her hometown. That's where she's from. In the Bible, Lydia was a seller of purple. She was a businesswoman and very successful too, it seems. She was from Thyatira and she was won to the Lord Jesus Christ by the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 16 when she was doing business in Philippi. And this would have been approximately 40 or more years ago, give or take, uh, when the book of Revelation was written. Um, let's see here. We have, uh, again, a picture here, Thyatira. Shows you there, Thyatira. And uh, here are some uh, pictures that some tourists took, some ancient ruins in the city. Some ancient-looking people in amongst the ancient ruins. Some more ancient ruins. It's an aerial view. Ah, down here, Akisar. That's the name, the new name of uh, Thyatira. Now, we're going to get to verse 18 here. Verse 18. These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. Now Christ's eyes are likened unto here a flame of fire, burning through things, can burn to the heart, uh, the heart and the truth. And he's standing firm in righteous judgment, I believe, to crush sin. Bible scholars tell us that brass is often a symbol of judgment. Now this picture of Christ here for this church is not so much one a, a picture of comfort, but it's a picture of judgment. I think that the Lord is very serious when it comes to the matter of sin, because that's what nailed him to the cross. It was our sin, and he died for us. I want you to notice something here when Jesus uh, reveals himself to the church. He reveals himself as the Son of God. Now this is different where in, um, for example, chapter 1, verse 13, he reveals himself, it says, as the Son of Man. The Son of Man pictures his humanity, but the Son of God pictures his divinity and that he'll be judge. 
Uh, let's keep our place there in, in Revelation chapter 2 and turn back a few pages to the book of Hebrews. And let's go to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 shows us this very serious picture of the Lord Jesus as judge. Many have the picture of the Lord Jesus as the meek and mild shepherd, which in some cases he is. But he's also a judge against sin. And uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. Follow along as I read. For if we sin willfully after that we've received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversary. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so, back to Revelation chapter 2, we have the Lord Jesus writing a letter to this church at Thyatira. And they seem to be thoroughly mixed, a full-scale entrenchment now with the world. In verse 19... Um, he says, I know thy works and charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works. And so he mentions works twice. And then he says, and the last to be more than the first. And so these are things that saved people do. Well, if saved people are doing these things, why, why are they mixed in with the world? And uh, why is Jesus there standing ready to, uh, to judge them? I believe that some of the Christians um, in that church, the works were improving and they were strong on charity, but they were weak on doctrine. And you need both. The church at Ephesus, it was weak on love, but it was very strong on doctrine. And you need a balance is what you need. Now we get to the heart of the matter here in verse 20. Notwithstanding... Um, in other words, after he's named these six items here, and works is named twice, after he names them, he's saying that these things do not hold back his chastisement. These wonderful things that they were doing, they were good things they were doing, but notwithstanding, they're going to get a rebuke. They're going to be upbraided. And so these six things, they're good, but they do not hold back the, the, the chastening. And that's a lesson for us too. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Wow. Well, that doesn't sound too good, does it? This woman Jezebel seems to be dominating the church. At Thyatira. Somehow, whoever she was, she seems to have risen to a place of prominence and influence and leadership and perhaps power and position. 
I'm only guessing, but I imagine she was an attractive, gracious woman with a magnetic personality. My guess is that if she were alive today, she'd be a TV preacher. She'd have a church of 15,000 and she'd broadcast her sermons all around the world. That's only my guess. But I don't think she was saved. Because notice how Jesus refers to her. Look at it again. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee. Verse 20, because thou sufferest. Look how he puts it. That woman. It's as if she didn't belong to Jesus. She refers to, to, she refers to Jezebel as that woman. Not, you know, in, in, in terms of familiarity and, and closeness. It's that person over there, that woman. Jezebel in the Old Testament was not saved. We know that. Judas in the New Testament, we know, was not saved. Now, if Jesus had referred to a man as Judas and called him that Judas, then I, I'm guessing that we'd all figure, well, that, that guy's not saved. He's not saved. And I think it's the same principle with this woman Jezebel. He's referring to her as that woman. But she called herself a prophetess. Now that's actually a very serious statement to make. You say, why is that? Because the church was founded on the, it's the foundation of apostles and prophets. Folks, there are no more apostles. There are no more prophets. They lived and died in the first century. The foundation of the church was laid back in the first century. We're not still laying the foundation. What kind of a crazy church would that be if every year we're always relaying the foundation? Relaying the foundation. The foundation's been laid and no other foundation can be laid but that which is laid. Apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone, which was a building term. They would use this stone, which was very square, had sharp corners, and they would use this, and that's off of which they'd shoot their angles. That was the chief cornerstone, very important stone. And the foundation of the building is already done. And so Ephesus had men and maybe some women coming in, calling themselves apostles, and they put them to the test, and they questioned them, and they found them to be liars. God only made a few apostles. He only gave that gift to just a few. That's all he wanted. That's all he needed. The prophets, only a few. That's all he wanted. That's all he needed. They're gone. And we've even got today men and women calling themselves apostles and calling themselves prophets. They're all over the internet. And they're all looking for a following is what they're looking for. Well, if she was a, a prophetess, what was it that she was preaching about? What was it? It was this. It was to commit fornication and eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, where have we heard this before? We go back to the previous church, Pergamos, starting in verse 12. And the Lord Jesus said, well, I know your works and blah, 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 blah. Verse 14, but I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel. 
to eat things sacrificed unto idols and commit fornication. Oh, no. Wow. It's in doctrinal form there. And now it's absolute practice over here. These two things. And the Lord Jesus hates them. Dead set against them. Any church involved with this kind of thing is really uh, on the wrong end of the, of the sick. So these people, they not only heard about it, but they got involved. And it looks like a lot of them got 100% involved with this error. And by the way, that's what the devil does, is he mixes truth and error. He loves to do that. Mix them together. He knows he could never get you to swallow lies, pure lies. And so what he does is he mixes truth and lies together. And this doctrine of mixing the truth, this is the depth of Satan. If you look at verse 24, halfway down, and which have not known the depths of Satan. Well, the depth of Satan, these people in verse 24, there were people in the church with a pure heart. And they didn't get involved, but there were others in the church that did get involved. If you will remember your Old Testament history, and I think we touched on this last week actually with um, the uh, previous, uh, yes we did, with the previous church in Pergamos. How that um, Balak wanted to uh, destroy Israel as they were in the wilderness, and he wanted this guy Balaam to come and to curse them, to break the spiritual power that was protecting them so he could get in there and destroy them. And he, he couldn't because Balaam couldn't, couldn't curse them. So what Balaam did was he taught Balak. He said, get some of your, uh, your, your girls to uh, dress immodestly and parade themselves up and down in front of those Jewish boys. And they'll, they'll, they'll come. And that's what he did and that's what happened. And many of the young men of Israel went and grabbed hold of these young um, uh, pagan worshiping, idol worshiping uh, girls and they started having fornication. And it caused incredible problem. And God's judgment started to pour out on the uh, children of Israel. And they had to fix the problem fast. And you remember Phineas? Remember him? There was one last uh, Israelite guy, and he took a girl right into his tent, brought her right into the camp of Israel. Phineas fixed it with a spear. You can read about that later. A little kind of creepy, a little bit gruesome, we'd say. But... Desperate times, desperate measures. And it uh, definitely stopped the, uh, the judgment of God on his people for getting involved with that. Well, it looks like here we got it all over again. Now, the devil loves to mix truth and error. I'll tell you a truth. God loves you. That's a truth. We have that uh, many times in Scripture. God loves you. Now, that's the truth. Now, what the devil does is he mixes error with that truth. And so the devil says, oh, God loves you. He'll never hate you. And so it's okay to get involved with fornication. I mean, after all, you're only human. And you, you, you can't expect to, uh, you know, to uh, deny your humanity. So get involved. Get involved there with the fornication. It's okay. Nothing will happen because God loves you. That's a mixture of truth and error. Can you see that? And the truth is, oh no, that's not going to stay the hand of chastisement or, or judgment from God upon a Christian or a church or a nation. 
because God is still set against sin. God loves the sinner, but he hates the sin, hates the devil. By the way, we ought not to love the devil. We ought not to love sin, love the devil. We ought to hate that like God hates it. And so Jezebel was probably not her real name. She was probably a woman whose life closely resembled the Old Testament Jezebel, which may be why Jesus called her Jezebel. Jezebel in the Old Testament was the wife of King Ahab back in 1 Kings 16. Ahab's Jezebel caused Israel to join itself to the pagan god Baal. When Ahab, the king of Israel, married Jezebel, he married the world and paganism because she brought Baal worship right into the nation Israel. Baal worship involved pagan sacrifices and fornication in temple orgies. The great Bible teacher, Donald Gray Barnhouse, used to say that the priests of Baal were wicked sex perverts. Solomon, unfortunately, married several pagan idol-worshipping women. And they went and turned his heart completely to the world. It's sad, but it's true, and it still happens today that uh, the heart of a good man can be turned to the world by a wicked woman. Doesn't matter even if you're Samson. You get messing around with the wrong woman and you'll eventually find the woman that'll conquer you, Samson. So it's still happening even today. That's sad but true. Jezebel in Thyatira taught the Christians there at that church <clears throat> to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit fornication. Now I want you to notice once again that this church was strong on charity, but weak on doctrine and discipline. If you look back at verse 19, I know thy works and charity. See that? They would have really been involved with social goodness and helping out people wherever they could and service, and faith, and patience, and works. There it is again. So they were strong on charity, but they were weak on doctrine and discipline. And uh, the church of Ephesus, if Jezebel had showed up at the church of Ephesus, they would have said, wait right there, sweetheart. Sit right down. We're going to ask you a few questions. And they would have grilled her on her doctrine and found her to be a liar and a fraud and a cheat. And they would have booted her right out of there. The church of Ephesus would have but not the church of Thyatira. They just said, well, we want to be loving. We want to just kind of get along with everyone. And so let's let her come in. And so she came in. And they went down from there. Now Jezebel may have started telling the church people, how are we going to win this city? How are we going to introduce Jesus to this city unless we join up with the pagan trade guilds. How else are we going to win this city? How else are we going to reach these poor people unless we become like them? Sound familiar? It ought to because that's the same philosophy that's being propagated in church after church today. And many churches that once stood for the truth and supported missionaries and sent out soul winners and held godly standards 
are now as worldly as can be because of that principle right there. We have to become like them if we're going to win them. Now think of how stupid that is. You want to win the alcoholics? You're going to go into the bars and start sitting down and drinking with them? You want to, you want to win the drug addicts? So you're going to start shooting up so you can sit down in the, in the stinking alley with them? You're going to want to win all of the, the male and female prostitutes, so you're going to get involved with that stuff too? Where does it end? Well, I think it ends in a pit of hell, really, if you ask me. So, as a result, I think some of the people in the church at Thyatira joined up with the trade guilds and got involved with fornication and with um, um, eating the things sacrificed to idols. She, uh, this Jezebel, um, caused the people to bring sin and idol worship and immorality into the church. And so let's be on guard because that very same principle is happening even in this city that we live. Now verse 21, Jesus continues. He says, And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. So it would appear that Christ gave her ample time as he gave the people in Noah's day. He gave them ample time while the ark was building and Noah was preaching. He gave them 120 years to repent. And they didn't repent. And she didn't repent. And the church at Thyatira didn't repent. And so, uh, boy, the church ought to have gotten right and cast her out. You know, honestly, folks, Sometimes you've got to cut off a finger in order to save the whole hand. Sometimes you just have to do that. They didn't do it. They tolerated her. The church is supposed to judge sin in itself. Say, where do you find that in the Bible? Read 1 Corinthians chapter 5 someday. You'll read all about it. The local church is supposed to look after itself and judge sin within itself. Verse 22, Jesus says, Behold, I will cast her into a bed and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And so he says um, they need to repent of their deeds. And I believe that there was a lot of unsaved people in that church, and I believe that because of two things. Number one, it's how Jesus refers to these people. Look at it again in verse 22. Behold, I will cast her into a bed and them that commit adultery. And this uh, plural pronoun here doesn't sound very comforting, does it? Jesus refers to them as a distant them. There doesn't seem to be a, any closeness, any personal reference here. Number two is how Jesus treats them. It seems more of a punishment for their sin rather than a chastisement to bring them back to righteous living. It really seems like a judgment anyhow. Now here's what Christ would do to the sinners in the church of Thyatira. Number one, he was going to cast Jezebel into a bed. <clears throat> Some kind of source of temptation perhaps. Number two, them that commit adultery with her would experience great tribulation. 
You say, well, what's that? What could that possibly mean? Yeah, I'd like to know that too, especially to those first century Christians 2,000 years ago. What would those words have meant to them? Were these adulterers saved or were they unsaved? Well, my take on it is that they don't look very saved to me. So I would guess that they're unsaved. But only the Lord knows. Well, what is this great tribulation then that Jesus speaks of? The term great tribulation essentially refers to a terrible time of suffering is what it refers to. And you know what? Christ can put anyone through that. You don't have to wait for the actual seven years of tribulation and the last three and a half of great tribulation to be put through suffering. The Lord Jesus knows how to bring chastisement or judgment on any man or woman or church or home or family or a business or a nation. The Lord Jesus can do that. He can put anyone through great suffering as a punishment or as a means to encourage repentance. Now, if this church here, this church at Thyatira, uh, if the church pictures wicked, immoral uh, churches today, like it may well, then they may certainly find themselves left behind to go through the tribulation. Uh, unsaved people don't get to go to heaven when Jesus comes back in the rapture. Verse 23 the Lord says, and I will kill her children with death. Wow. That sounds, um, that sounds pretty serious here. And all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. That's a very stern uh, chastisement or judgment. Let's put it that way. Her children maybe those in the church following the teachings of Jezebel, and Christ would kill them with death. It sounds very much like how God was going to deal with the unsaved. Sounds that way. And then he goes on in that verse and says that the churches with saved people shall know that Christ rewards everyone according to their work. Verse 24, But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine. Now, what does it mean here when he talks to these people? Well, I think that he's referring to the saved ones that were in the church because there were saved people, it seems, in there because it was still one of Christ's churches. It wasn't the uh, synagogue of Satan as mentioned earlier in the book. This is one of his own churches. And uh, he had the pastor, the star in his hand, and he walks around in and out amongst the, the candlesticks here. And so I think this refers to the saved ones in the church who were standing true and faithful. They didn't buy into that doctrine of Jezebel. They knew better. Their hearts were probably breaking as they saw brothers and sisters getting involved with this worldliness here. Verse 25, But uh, that which ye have already, hold fast till I come. Um, I think he's referring to the maintaining of good works and standing strong and true, he says, till I come. And then you have the promise of eternal rewards here in verse 26. He says, And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, 
To him will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father. And I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And so here's the promise of eternal rewards, power over the nations, which seems to me, well, in connection with the next phrase, ruling with a rod of iron, I think is a reference to the millennial kingdom of Christ. During that thousand year reign of Christ, and Christ will rule with a rod of iron, any open sin, any open rebellion will not be tolerated. It's tolerated today. In fact, it's tolerated so much it makes us sick to death. Sin is in control. The lunatics have taken over the asylum. That's the state of the world today. It won't last. And in the millennial kingdom, when our Savior reigns upon the earth, and we will reign with him, we'll be part of his thousand-year reign. He will not put up with the nonsense that's being put up with today. Open rebellion will be put down instantly. Now you say, whoa, boy, that, does, that, does that mean that no one can speak their mind? That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is sin, open sin. The fornication is not going to be tolerated. The blasphemy is not going to be tolerated. That people are, you know, well uh, able to voice their opinions, their thoughts on things. Nothing wrong with that at all. That's not what he's referring to when he says open rebellion. The Lord is very loving Lord. But it's the sin. There's a lot of wickedness that goes on now. A lot of lying, cheating, stealing. Murders. Things that are being sort of tolerated. Murderers today, they get light sentences of only a few years. Slap on the wrist and they're let go, put back into society. Not going to be that way when Jesus comes back to earth. And we'll be there with him. And so there's a promise here. And he mentions the morning star. And I kind of think it's a reference to himself. The particular message to the particular church at Thyatira is keep your doctrine pure and judge sin in yourself. Now, listen, folks. Every one of us has a struggle at times with sin. Maybe the sin you struggle with are uh, bad thoughts, evil thoughts, wrong thoughts, impure thoughts. Maybe the sin you struggle with is um, greed and desiring to have things and wishing with all your heart you had millions of dollars or, or that you were independently wealthy. Or maybe it has something to do with uh, the body, with food, and you just can't uh, stop thinking about food or, or sex or um, uh, substances to... Uh, to put in your body. And maybe you haven't been doing it, but maybe you're struggling. And often, often, Christians struggle with some area, some kind of temptation. Now, that's very, very true. But we are to judge the sin within ourselves. When you find that you are entertaining wrong thoughts, right away you need to cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, help me. I'm having bad thoughts. Maybe it's angry thoughts towards someone, a loved one, or even a, uh, an enemy. You know, you, you're having some real bad thoughts toward the person. Cry out to the Lord and ask Him to cleanse you. Ask Him to give you victory over those bad thoughts. 
Because he can do that. And he can bring verses of the scriptures to your heart and mind if you're spending time with him in, in the word every day. If you're not spending any time with him in the word every day, you go through temptation, you don't have any ammunition. Where's your shield even? Your shield of faith. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by what? The word. Yeah. So if you're not spending time in the word every day, you're not even going to have a shield against them of those fiery darts. So you have to do your part and you've got to spend time with the Lord. And then when you do go through temptation then you can cry out to the Lord and then there's armament, there's help for you. But we need to deal with the sin in our hearts, in our lives. Keep short accounts with sin. You let sin fester. Oh boy, I tell you. You know, I've, I've got an aquarium, actually two aquariums at the house. I've got a large 30-gallon, I've got a small 10-gallon aquarium. And I've been, um, I've been messing around with little aquarium fish now for a number of years. And you get to learn a few things about keeping an aquarium. And one of the things that you eventually learn is that your aquarium has to have kind of a little bit of a balance to it as far as the water conditions and food you put in. And I can guarantee you this, you start throwing too much food in that aquarium and you don't clean out the, you know, change part of your water. You've got to change like uh, 15 to 20% of the water every week, something like that. Some people say 10%. But you've got to do a water change every week. You've got to have good filtration, some aeration, you know, to, to uh, keep the oxygen level in the, in the water. But you've got to do these things. You don't do these things, and you're going to find that green is going to start growing all over the walls of your aquarium. And you keep throwing in a lot of food, you're going to find that your fish are going to get sick. And then you're going to start seeing worms crawling on the walls of your aquarium. And it's not a pretty sight. Well, how did it get this way? Neglect. And that's what happens to us Christians. We get that way by neglect. We have to stay with God every day. This is a battlefield, folks. This is not a recreation hall. This is a war we're in. And we've got to keep in step with the Lord every day and throughout the day. That's why I think it's wise to spend your first portion of the morning with the Lord and the last portion of the day with the Lord. It doesn't have to be hours each time but it should be a little bit of time in the morning and in the evening. You'll find your taste for it will grow and you'll increase the time a little more. But then you can pray throughout the day. Then you've really got something. Then you're keeping the, the balance. You're watching over things properly. And when sin comes, you'll run to the Lord for help or you'll confess it right away. And that's the message here at the Church of Thyatira. Keep your doctrine pure and keep short accounts with sin. There was a pastor who was uh, trying to teach the teenagers uh, an important lesson. And he brought in a large glass jar with a lid on it. And there were a bunch of marbles in there. And he set that on a table. And he said, okay, guys, he said, tell me how many marbles you think are in that jar. I'll write your, your guesses up here on the board. One kid said, 2,000, he wrote that down. Another kid says 1,000, he wrote that down. Another kid said 1,522, he wrote that down. 
And he went all through the room and he got all these different guesses as to what was in the jar. And then he said, okay, what's your favorite hymn? And one kid said, Rock of Ages. He wrote that down. What's your favorite hymn? Safe in the arms of Jesus. He wrote that down. And he went all through the room and he wrote down all of these hymns. And then he says, now, this jar of marbles, I wrote down all of your guesses, what you thought was in here. But the answer is, and he said, according to the law of mathematics, you can't all be right. Agreed? And the kids all agreed. Oh yeah, we can't all be right. There's only one answer, right? According to the law of mathematics. And the pastor turned the bottle over and the answer was written on the bottom. 1,115. That's how many marbles were in there. And the kids said, oh wow. And right away they figured out which one of them had the closest guess to 1,115. And the pastor said, it doesn't matter if you're close. You're still wrong because the correct answer is 1,115. And the kid said, yeah, 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 that's right. There's only one right answer. And then the pastor, he said, okay, now, which one of these hymns is the right hymn? And they, they kind of had this puzzled look on their face. What do you mean? Well, which one is right? All the rest would be wrong, obviously. Which one is right? And they said, no, pastor, it's not that way. It's all a matter of preference. You know, I like this one, he likes that one. It's all according to preference. And the pastor said, you're right. They're all good hymns, what you've, what you've chosen. I've written them all down. He said, young people, in life, sometimes there are some things that we can pick and choose according to personal preference. We can pick and choose what shoes we're going to wear today, all according to personal preference. But then there are some things in life that only have one right answer. Spiritually, those answers are found in the Word of God. Just like the law of mathematics says there can only be one right answer, how many marbles there are in the jar, the laws of God, the Word of God, tells us there's one right answer. And so he taught them the lesson. Keep your doctrine pure. Keep your doctrine pure. That's the message from Thyatira. Keep your doctrine pure. They should have done that. And they didn't. So I think the Lord put them through chastisement and judgment because of it. Let's bow for prayer.